Stephen, good. All right, Malachi chapter 3. Again, super excited, finishing the Old Testament. Next week, Lord willing, uh, start to send me some questions. Uh, we'll do a, maybe a week or two of question and answer just to give everybody a chance to catch their breath. If something's come up or just in your reading or in these studies, you could ask any question. Um, and then, you know, when the Lord changes that, we'll get into some New Testament. Uh, so, four chapters, 55 verses, 1,781 words. Um, the date's a little bit debated, I think. It's a little bit, uh, I'm going to park around 516 B.C. Um, his name means my angel or my messenger. And nothing is really known about him. Nothing. He doesn't talk about himself in here. We don't know if he was a herdman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. We don't know anything about him. We know his name. So he's the unknown prophet with the angelic name, right? His name means my angel or my messenger, but we don't know anything about him. Uh, He strengthens Nehemiah the same way Haggai encouraged Zerubbabel. So remember, Zerubbabel, I still don't know if that's how you say his name, but Zerubbabel, whatever his name is, right? He'll tell me in heaven. But uh, he brings that 50,000 down, the original migration from, from captivity. And uh, Haggai and um, Zechariah are prophesying during his tutelage. But a few years later, uh, Nehemiah is building the wall and restoring the nation. And, and um, Malachi is encouraging and exhorting him. And, and kind of what happened was, initially, they get into building, they get their hearts right, they're excited to be there, and there's this great revival, things start getting built, but then they kind of cool their jets, and the people become spiritually lax and lazy, and that's a whole message for itself, because, you know, when something starts, it's exciting, and everybody wants to be there, but, you know, in a year down the road, are you still there, Six months down the road, are you still there? You know, that's, that's, that's a big challenge, you know. It's always, it's always exciting when something's starting, when the foundation is laid and you see something bur- born from nothing. But will you be there in five years, you know, when it gets quiet, when the Sundays are ordinary? You know, if I bring a special speaker in, you know, you'll get people to come, you'll invite guests, you'll invite friends. But how about that, like, you know, ordinary Sunday in October when it's not a holiday, it's not a special day, there's no special speaker, you're still excited about the Lord and the things of God then. That's the challenge that Malachi was up against because the temple had been restored and the sacrifices had been reinstituted, but formalism had crept in. You see that? That happens to us. Things are going, but like Eli always likes to remind us, we don't want to become that machine. And what's happening in Malachi is The machinery is taking over. They're bringing the offerings, they're bringing the sacrifices, but they're going through the motions. Hello, (laughs) am I talking to anybody? (laughs) You know those things that preachers say to see if you're paying attention, but you got to watch out because Malachi is the last of the prophets before the 400 silent years between the Testaments, right? He's right there at the end. So, what we see in Malachi before the first coming says a lot about what we'll see before the second coming, because God has these patterns. That which has been, that which shall be, hath already been, right? I'm probably saying that backwards. But God's telling you, He requires that which is past. So if Malachi is preaching, and the people of God have gotten steeped in formalism before the first coming, rest assured that the people of God, before the second coming, are going to have the same problem. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, you don't have to turn there, but it says that in the last days... 
people will be having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That's what was happening in Malachi's day, and that's what's happening in our day. There are people that are outwardly Christian, outwardly holding a Bible, outwardly professing Christ, claiming to know some fundamentals, but they're going through the motions. And we have to be on special guard that we're not going through the motions, that our hearts are rent, that we want to see God move, even on that ordinary Sunday in the middle of October, that you just want to see God move as much as the first day you got saved or during a revival or Spurgeon coming. It's all the same to God. He's looking at the heart. So watch out for formalism. It creeps in because we know the routines. It's Sunday or it's Thursday. We're going to go to church. I'm going to put some, you know, decent clothes on. I'm going to smile. I'm going to sing some songs. There's going to be some announcements. You know, we're going to hear a message. I'm going to go eat something and collapse. You know, we're kind of used to the way it goes. And not that habit is bad, but don't get settled on those habits and just get comfortable that you're leaning on those habits because then you start bringing to God vain repetition. And God's not really into that. So what do we have before Jesus came the first time? Who was in charge before Jesus came the first time? Who was out there? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Formalism! They may broad their phylacteries, right? They outwardly appeared holy, but inwardly Jesus said what? They were full of dead men's bones. They were like whited sepulchers. That's what happened before Jesus came the first time. What's going to happen before Jesus Christ comes the second time? There's going to be a Pharisaical spirit among God's people among the ones that know the book, like the Pharisees knew the book. We've got to watch that legalism. We've got to watch that formality. We've got to watch that rite, that ritual. We've got to be on special guard against it. Sometimes habit's okay. doesn't mean it's evil to have good habits. It's good to have habits. If it's Sunday, you should go to church. That should just be a good habit. But watch out for formalism. It's really, really sneaky, right? Really sneaky. Um, God asks a lot of questions in this book. 23 questions in a little book with 55 verses. You know why? Because God is reasoning with His people. That's why He's asking questions, right? Come now and let us reason together. Good question makes you think. You see the key phrases on your paper there? Ye say ten times. Ye said two times. You know what that tells me? God is listening. You said this. And you're saying that. And God's like, I just want you to know that you might think I'm asleep up there in heaven, but I'm listening. That's what formalism does, right? You just start moving the machine and you kick God out of the equation. Pastor Mel used to say that I bet you could remove God from 75%, you could remove the Holy Ghost from 75% of Bible churches and the machinery would keep on turning and they wouldn't even know God was God. Samson represents the Laodicean church, doesn't he? He wist not that the Holy Spirit was departed from him. He didn't even know God left him. And sometimes we don't even know God leaves us. Scary, right? We're more in tune with the reception we have on our phone and our connection to a satellite somewhere than we are to God Almighty. If we had the same diligence, and I'm preaching to myself too, I'm getting ready for camp. But if we had the same diligence to be as careful and as vigilant about our connection to God and our fellowship with God as we are about how many bars we have or how fast the page is loading or why isn't the picture going through on my text message, we'd have revival. But formalism crept in, and they just were going through the motions. As long as the temple was open, I'll bring my dove, yada, 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 and I'll go back to what I really wanted to do. Go to uh, wear in six times, cursed three times. We'll get to that word in a little bit. Let's go to Malachi 3. You're standing there, right? Or reading there, verse 9 and 10. 
I'm not going to preach about tithing out of these verses, by the way. All right, that's a very famous verse for many Baptists to preach tithing out of Malachi 3.10. But that's not what I'm going to say here. Lord says, you're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. Improve me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. The people, he's saying, guys, if you only obeyed me, I'd bless you. He's, guys, you're only hurting yourselves by denying me. He's saying that to God's people. He's saying that to us. I mean, it's a good lesson to remember. We're only hurting ourselves when we deny God. If we would just fellowship with him and bring him what he wants, and I'm not talking about money at your heart. That's what he really wants. You know what he's saying? I pour you out a blessing. You couldn't even, it would be overflowing. It wouldn't just be filling your cup. It would be spilling out over into the saucer. Like somebody sings a song about that somewhere, I know. But uh, they're only hurting themselves with disobeying God. You're not making God less God. Amen. Well, you don't worship him. It's not like God, and I say this jokingly, God's not the tooth fairy or, you know, the Easter bunny. He doesn't start to vanish out of people's consciousness when you stop believing that he's there. No, he's there. You do well to believe in him, obey him. Key idea we'll talk about at the end. Remember, repent, return, and rehearse. It actually lines up with the four chapters of the book. And Jesus Christ is pictured as a son of righteousness. So let's go into this breakdown a little bit. I want to just make some comments on the breakdown you could add to possibly. But um, please notice that we, there's three big messages in the book. He starts where God always likes to start. He starts with a message of love. And that is good preaching. Not because I'm saying it. Because God always starts by reminding you that He loves you. And even though Israel is steeped in formalism, and even though they're not pleasing Him, and even though these priests are not worth shooting around this time, He's like in verse 6, "Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. You guys are saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. You're just, even the people of God who are supposed to be the ministers are just trotting God's work underfoot and casting it aside as a profane thing. God says, even though you guys are like that, in the first few verses, he declares his love. In fact, the first verse or the second verse, he declares his love for his people, right? Now, in the Old Testament, we get the proclamation of God's love for Israel. In the New Testament, we get the announcement that God so loved the world, right? That's a little bit of a difference there. And then what happens in, verse, in, in the ensuing verses? You know what Israel starts doing? Israel starts questioning. And isn't that what we do? That's exactly what we do. God says, I love you. We say, how can that be? Uh, does God really love me? Does God really care? It's exactly, you don't have to say amen. I'll say amen for you. If I had to put you down right now and say, preach a message on God's love, you could find me five verses, no problem, in the book of Romans and Galatians, Philippians, you could spin all over there, First John, you could find tons of verses about God's love for you, and yet in the practical living, you will question those verses and doubt them like you were just an atheist. Right? It's the truth. I'm preaching to myself too. We know it academically, theoretically, uh, theologically. Yes, God is love. God so loved the world. God loves me. Romans 8.38, Romans 8.39. But we question like God's people question then. Amen. And then verses 3 to 5, you know what God does? God starts to give proof. Man, that's a gracious God. I don't know what else God had to do to show him that he loved them, 
but he kind of reminds them in the beginning. So he gives them this love, and then he gives them rebuke. That's a good lesson for moms and dads and everybody everywhere. God will tell you he loves you. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So it's like the first message is love. The second message is rebuke. The first, person, the first group he rebukes are the priests. Because God always starts with the people who should know better. He always holds the people that should know better more accountable. So he starts with the priests and then he moves on to the people. And then he ends with a message of hope. Right? Chapter 3 is about uh, the coming of the Lord, future. And then chapter 4 actually takes us to the day of the Lord and um, gives us that vision there. So let's jump in now to some Bible pictures and some important truths from the book of Malachi, or the book of Malachi, however you want to say it. All right? Let's look at verse 1. Number one, first picture is God's hatred for Esau. What is that all about? And what is that not all about? All right, let's talk about that. Let's read three, Let's read 1, verses 3 to 5. Uh, and I hated Esau. Yikes, God said that. You know, God hates things, by the way. God hates things. Uh, I had somebody um, email me. I still have to respond, so if you're watching, I'm sorry. But it was a good question. Does God still love the souls in the lake of fire? I said, well, your question begs another question. Does God, did God, does God love the wicked? The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. It says God so loved the world, past tense, on the cross. I know he, he demonstrated and commended his love toward us, but God is not smiling on that rapist. God isn't happy with that thief. He wants that person to be saved. He wants them to repent. But if they don't, he's not going to be like, I got to do this. I'm really sorry. But, you know, the terms of the deal, he's going to push them into hell like, like this. No, he's, he's going to execute wrath and fury, and he's going to be right to do it. So I got to respond to that person. But I don't know. God's not happy with them now if they're not saved. Forget about when they're in the lake of fire. I mean, so, and God hated Esau, he says. And he says, I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste. Remember in Obadiah, he dwells in the cleft of the rock and, and over there. For the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border, important, of Israel. So we see God's hatred for Esau, God's hatred for the descendants of Edom. Right? Now, who are the Edomites? Well, the Edomites are those Arab and Muslim peoples that surround Israel today. Edomites still alive and well, and they surround Israel today, those countries. And God is declaring, here's what I want you to see. God is declaring his hatred centuries after Esau's descendants had been enemies of Israel. It's not like Esau came out of the womb with Jacob and said, I hate you. Malachi is hundreds and hundreds of years after Esau was founded. You say, why are you saying that? Go to Romans chapter 9. Because our Reformed friends and our Calvinist brethren want to pretend like Romans chapter 9 is God describing His election. 
that God is just saying kind of fickle, I decided to love Jacob and I decided to hate Esau. And they'll use that to say, well, that's what God was like in eternity past. God decided to love Estella over here and hate Brian. Sorry, Brian, right? God just capriciously spun the lotto machine and said, Josh, I'm calling your number, but Aaron, you're out. That is what a Calvinist believes. That is what a Calvinist believes. That's what John Calvin believed. And just because somebody says, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist, not a five-point Calvinist, you're a nutjob Calvinist if you believe any of it. Because you believe that God somewhere in eternity past, 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 spun the lotto wheel like they used to do on WPIX, right? The lady would come on and the balls would come on and they'd win the numbers. God called your number, Jacob, but not you, Sam. You're beat, right? That's, that's what God said. Sorry, Sam, you're wearing a red shirt. Sorry, right? But that's it. Now, here's where they get that from, Romans 9, 13. Romans 9, if you walk into a church that calls itself Reformed or calls itself Calvinist, you would think that Romans chapter 9 is the only chapter in the New Testament. Because Romans chapter 9 is where they want to park all the time. They want to bring in Romans 9. The vessels fitted for destruction. And, um, and you know, you're going to hear sovereignty in there. Romans 9, 13. As it is written. Where is it written? Malachi. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So you're going to read that quote out of context and accuse God of being a monster like them. They're going to just pull this thing out of Romans 9, which has nothing to do with personal salvation, but everything to do with national salvation. Romans 9 is not about you. That's in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, right? 9, 10, and 11 is about nations. It's about Israel and their relation to other nations. So they're going to pull this verse out and take national salvation and make it apply to your personal salvation, and they don't even know what they're talking about. And they could all turn, oh yeah, maybe God did choose an eternity past to hate some people and save some people. Oh, maybe you got something, Mr. Washer. Maybe you got something, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Piper. Maybe you got something. No, you don't have anything. You have somebody ripping something out of context because can we take him in verse 11? Um, he's talking about the children in Rebekah's womb, right? For the children, and Genesis 25 says those children are two nations. He told Rebekah, two nations are in thy womb. So everything about Jacob and Esau is national. He says, for the children being not yet born, neither, watch it, having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but he said, have I hated. What I want you to see is, when they were just babies, God says, you're not good or bad. I got no feelings about you either way. But it's only after Esau had been centuries of an enemy of Israel, centuries of a blight in Israel's path, centuries as a carnal man of the field, then God says, Hundreds of years later, I hate you, Esau. Why does he hate you? Because you're a man of the field. You're carnal. You're wicked. And you're hating my people. You're resisting my people. You know what? I hate you. He didn't say that when they were babies. He didn't say that when they came out. He said that hundreds and hundreds of years after they were born. So God didn't sit back in eternity past and say, Eugene, you're in. Mario, you're out. But after you live a little bit and somebody decides to reject Jesus Christ, you know what God says? I hate you. I'm going to send you to hell if you don't repent and get saved. I don't like the way you're living. God sees that after you've lived a sinful life and turned away from him, like Esau did. Now remember, please, does that make sense? All right. 
I get too riled up about that stuff. I just can't stand Calvinism. I can't stand it. I just think it is the most insidious lie out of the pit of hell. But to ask me how I really feel later. Remember, Malachi is a bridge between the Testaments, right? He's getting ready for the New Testament. He's closing it out. Now watch it. If judgment was pronounced on Esau before the first coming of Christ, drum roll, judgment is coming upon Esau at the second coming of Christ. And when you read about the second advent and the Lord coming back, you see him judging Esau, judging Edom, judging Idumea, which is Edom. He's got a special judgment for those people who what? They resisted Israel then and they want to blow them up now. So God says, I'm going to judge you. He talked about it then. It's going to happen now. Second picture, verse number six. Go back to Malachi, I should say. Where am I? Go back to Malachi 1. Second picture is your relationship to God. We have a picture of the relationship God's people should have to God. It's right there in Malachi 1.6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. You see that? That's your relationship to God right now, like Israel. You're a son first, and a servant second, right? God has to be your father first, so you could serve him second. Jehovah was Israel's father corporately, and Israel as a nation was supposed to serve him. They're expected to be that light to the nations. They're expected to be that testimony of God to the world. If God is your father, he's your father individually now, right? He's not saving nations anymore. He's saving individuals. So if you're saved, say amen. Amen. All right. God is our Father or your Father individually, and the saints individually are supposed to serve Him. But you're a son first, a servant second. You got that? A son first, a servant second. You can't be a servant if you're not a son. And every son is a servant. Now keep reading the verse. He says, If then I be a father... Where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts, unto you, O priests, that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Right? In other words, he's saying, if God is your father, you're expected to honor him. You're expected to admire him. You're expected to respect him. That's what we would do with our earthly fathers. God says, hey, what about me? I'm supposed to be your father. What does it say in uh, Malachi 2? Look at verse 10. Have we not all one father? Right, that's the nation of Israel talking about their father. God's relationship to Israel was like a father. He calls Israel his son in Exodus chapter 4. He tells Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son. He corporately looked at that nation as his son. He says, okay, I'm your dad. You like that I called you out? You like that I supply your need? Where is my respect? He's like Rodney Dangerfield. How come I don't get no respect? That's what he's saying. Where is my honor? Honor thy father and thy mother. It's in the Hebrew uh, Ten Commandments. How come you're not exercising that honor towards me? And then he says, if I'm a master, you're expected to fear him. (laughs) You're expected to be in awe of him. We're in awe of our our governors, our mayors. I mean, we, we go to these fairs. These mayors are mayors of like five people. And we're like, oh, that's the mayor. You know, you know like, oh, let's give a track to the mayor. He's like, he lives next door to you, guy. You know, but it's just, it's the mayor. And we have, you know, it's just natural to have some respect and some awe for the people in authority. This is the master of, of heaven and earth. Amen. 
the king of kings and lord of lords, and we're just, where's the fear? Where's the trembling? That's what he's saying. Third picture. Let's go to Malachi 3. Picture of the second coming. Let's read verse, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. All right. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom he delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Please notice some things that show us that this has to do with the second coming. Please notice verse 1, please. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. That is clearly a prophecy of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist preached, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight, make his path straight. So there's a prophecy of John the Baptist. Keep reading. Then it says, The Lord, the messenger of the covenant. That's Jesus Christ at his first coming. Because he came to confirm the covenant that had been made to Abraham. Amen. Right, So he came to confirm that covenant and the promises made to Israel. He says, the one you're seeking is going to come, the messenger of the covenant, the confirmer of the covenant. That's the first coming. But look at verse number two. Then it says, he's coming with fire. So there are 2,000 years between verse one and verse two. You see that? Verse one is his first coming to confirm the promises made to Israel. The second verse is his second coming. When he comes with fire and judgment and to refine and to sift and to purge and to judge. You say, why are they so close together? We said it last week. The first coming could have been the second coming if Israel had received him. If Israel received him, somehow God would have gone right into his program without this thing called the church. But God sticks the church in that, between those two verses. There are 2,000 year gap. Another gap theory, right? There's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 of 2,000 years. We're living in the gap between verse 1 and verse 2. Keep reading, verse 3. And he shall sit, ah, judgment, as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Please see there, Israel coming through the fire of great tribulation. You see that? Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2. Joshua is the high priest, right? We, we looked at it last week. And Joshua, the high priest, it says, God says, isn't, it, isn't this a brand plucked out of the fire? Because Israel is going to be like a brand plucked out of the fire. Go to Zechariah chapter 13. Let me show you what he's going to do. You see some of the words there? He's going to refine this fire. Just turn a few pages to the left and go to Zechariah 13, 9, and look what it says there. Last verse of Zechariah 13. Just got to watch the words. Zechariah 13, 9. God speaking. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them. There's that word again. 
as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. At that second coming, God's going to bring a third of Israel, only a third. Not everybody's going to get saved. Not everybody's going to turn to God. A lot of them are going to go after the Antichrist and take the mark and perish. But a third of Israel is going to come through that fire like a brand plucked out of the fire. And God's going to uh, spare them and try them. And they're going to come forth as silver and gold coming through the fire. Now, you remember what Job said, right? Way back in Job 23. Remember many months ago when we studied Job? When I couldn't walk. And Job said... When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job has 42 chapters. Job represents Israel going through the 42 months of great tribulation. He goes through fire and heat. He says, I'm going to come forth as gold. God says, I'm going to take my people through fire and heat like silver and gold. It's all lining up, people. I hope you start to see the ducks in a row. The Bible is consistent. Now go back to Malachi 3 and look at verse 4. After this happens, after he sits to judge, after he brings the people through the purging fires, because the tribulation is really about trying Israel. The judgment seat of Christ that's happening in heaven is trying your works. The fire that's going on down here through the tribulation is trying them. It's a little, it's very different, but there's a parallel. Now, he says there in 3, 4, then, then, after Israel's come through the fire after Israel has been plucked out after Jesus sat and has refined them then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years the book begins in chapter 1 with God laying into the priests with God laying into the people at Jerusalem with God laying into the servants of God in Judah and Jerusalem but by the end God looks to the future and says when I'm all done with this thing you guys are going to please and bless me again like you did when we first started praise the Lord for that after the refining fire Judah and Jerusalem are reconciled to God and he says you're going to finally please me again Oh, what a day that'll be. <laughs> what a day when we finally get purged and sifted and refined and we can please God with everything we do and think. We try our best now, but we still make a lot of mistakes. And I think probably 99% of the time I'm making God just go, oh my goodness, Pat, when are you going to get this right? But there's going to be a day when God looks at me at the judgment seat of Christ and just burns away all the dross and then I'll just come forth as gold and I'll be just exactly what he wanted to be. He's going to do that for me personally at the judgment seat of Christ. He's doing this nationally on the earth during the tribulation. See the parallels? They're not the same, but there's parallels. Okay, let's go on. Let's go to picture number four. I'm going to call this a picture of indestructible Israel. Probably can't read what I'm writing up here because it's too small, but I'm telling you, it's indestructible Israel. And we're just going to follow some words. Bible study. Fun stuff. Malachi 3, verse 6. See what it says in 3, 6? For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. All right, I want to just highlight that word, right? Not consumed, devoured, destroyed, swallowed up. Hold your place in Malachi and go back to Exodus chapter 3. 
this is a reference to the burning bush. An emblem of Israel is the burning bush back in Exodus 3. Exodus 3, verse 2. God's saying, because of me, you're not going to be consumed. You're not going to be destroyed. You're not going to be ravaged. You're not going to be ruined. That's a good lesson, isn't it? Because of God, you won't be ravaged. Oh, it might get hot, brethren. You might feel like you're going to melt, but God is not going to let you get destroyed. You will not perish if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You stay close to Him. No matter how hot it gets out there, how dangerous it gets, God says, you're not going to be destroyed. I'm not going to let them destroy you. And it says in Malachi, Exodus 3.2, Moses sees this sight, and it says, And the angel of the Lord, that's a reference to Jesus Christ over there at Sinai, by the way, appeared unto him, meaning Moses, in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, And the bush was not consumed. Same words. I am Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Way back when he's starting to found the nation and get them ready to come out of Egypt, he says, you see this bush on fire? I'm in the midst of it. It's burning, but it's not consumed. The burning bush is an emblem of Israel. Burned, but not destroyed. You think about it. Crazy short Austrian guy in Germany tried to literally burn them off the face of the earth. The nation is still here. Right? How many people have tried to eradicate that little nation and God's let them go through the fires and then Antichrist is going to hunt them and yes, many of them will perish in the tribulation but that nation is going to get through because God says, like that burning bush, you may face the fire and feel the fire but you will not be consumed. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. What a God. Burned but not consumed. Israel will go through the fire of great tribulation, but Israel will not be destroyed. They haven't yet, and they never will. Why? Romans 11. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God made a promise to the fathers, and God's word cannot be broken. He says, I made a promise to Abraham, I made a promise, and it's not going to be broken. He says, even your sin, Israel, is not going to break it. God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a new covenant with you. That's how much God says, I'm not going to break this promise with, Israel, with, with Abraham. He says, I made a promise to the fathers. I made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to take the old law out of the way. I'm going to create a new covenant. And that's how I'm going to reconcile myself to you and be married back to you and bring in everlasting righteousness. God wants to keep his promises. You understand that? God says the scripture cannot be broken. And God's got this thing worked out that he's always going to keep his promise all the time, all the time. And nothing you could do to beat it. All right? Go back to Malachi chapter 3. He says, The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He says that in the context of Israel being reconciled to God. They're not going to be consumed. He's going to come out of a Zion. He's going to come out a deliverer. He's going to deliver that nation. I know you're tired on a Thursday night, but that's dramatic, man. That's dramatic. I mean, you watch movies where the, where the good guy's cornered and everybody's against him and somebody rides in on a white horse or something like that. All that is a ripoff of the Bible. 
There's going to be this little speck of a nation that the whole world can't stand, that's been hunted by the beast that they're going after. You know, they got this spy grid. They're probably searching for them. They're hiding in the rock. I bet they're hiding in the rock because all your EMF radiation can't track people in there. One, that's why God sticks them in that rock city over there in Sila Petra. And they're running, they're hiding. And God comes down. He says, I'm coming. He appears in the sky. He comes down and whoom, he's coming down and doing all this great stuff. And all of a sudden, the Antichrist has got him cornered. And out of the eastern sky comes a deliverer. And they cry out to him in distress. And he comes down. He does all the stuff he's going to do. When you figure it out, let me know. It's a little foggy, some of the stuff. He's going to take some out, bring some in, kill some. There's all this kind of stuff happens when he comes back. But at the end of the day, he delivers Israel. This little nation, this little woman in distress, so to speak, he's going to deliver her from the mouth of the lion. Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, I change not. Right? The immutability of God. He doesn't go back on His promises. He doesn't take His gifts back and His calling back. Isn't that amazing? We give, we take back. We give love to people, we take it back. We give money to people, we want it back. We give time, we expect something back. God says, when I give you something, I'm not taking it back. Not taking it back. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance, without give backs, take backs. All right, next picture, I got two more, all right, and then we'll circle the wagons. There we go. All right. Number five, a picture of the book. A picture of the book. And I don't mean the Bible. It's going to be a picture of the book being opened at the white throne judgment. You back in Malachi, I hope? Malachi 3? Let's read 16 and 17. Let's read it slowly, okay? Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Then they... No, I didn't mean that slowly, but... Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. A lot of stuff going on there. It's a great devotional verse. Devotionally, it's nice to know that God remembers you when you remember him. Isn't that a blessing? It's nice. It's nice to know that nobody else gets a blessing out of that. It's nice that we were talking about that verse a few months ago, right? It's nice to know that God remembers you when you remember him, right? It's nice to remember that, okay? But that's not what this is doctrinally talking about. Because the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. So doctrinally, what in the world is going on here? What's God talking about? Well, let's do it. Notice it says in verse 16, a book of remembrance was written. So this is something happening in the past. In the book of Revelation, at the white throne judgment, the Bible says, Another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's a book that's getting opened in the future. A book is getting written in the past that's going to be opened in the future. Verse 17. In that day. This book he's talking about is is going to apply to that day. That day is the day of the Lord. Now, over 16, he says, they that feared the Lord and thought upon His name. If you study the Old Testament carefully, those that feared the Lord, the fear of the Lord led to salvation in the Old Testament. 
You could almost use fear and faith almost interchangeably in the Old Testament. It doesn't talk about faith a lot in the Old Testament. It talks about fear. So there's a book being written about people. Their names are getting recorded because they feared God. And then it says in verse 17, in that day, we're going to need this book. Now, in that day is the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is not just the second coming. The day of the Lord is the whole day. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years. So it's a whole thousand-year day, and at the end of that day is judgment. So part of that day is that white throne comes at the end of that day. Now stay with me now. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. Oh, I know what jewels are. I know what jewels are for 1 Corinthians 3, Zechariah 9. Jewels, precious stones, are people, according to the Word of God. They're people. Say, where do you get that from? Just the Bible. I don't mean to be arrogant when I say that. Just go to Zechariah 9, and you'll see it. Just flip back to Zechariah 9, and you'll see him say a very similar thing. That's why you've got to read the whole Bible. Because if you don't read the whole Bible, you just read your Proverb of the Day, or you just read your New Testament, you're going to miss all the cross-references and all the imagery that God has to connect the dots. In Zechariah 9, verse number 16, look what God says. He's talking about the second coming. He's talking about what we're talking about here. Zechariah 9, 16, And the Lord their God, Israel, shall save them in that day, second coming, as the flock of His people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown, lifted up as an ensign upon His land. What goes in a crown? What kind of stones? Not masonry stones, jewels. Precious stones go in a crown. He says, My people are going to be like Precious stones in a crown. Malachi says, these people that fear me and think about my name are going to be like my jewels. Right? Now go back to Malachi 3. Let's keep going. Watch it now. It's all right here. It's right in front of you. I make up my jewels, verse 17, and I will spare them. Because some people are going to get judged and some people are going to get spared. And Israel, those that really followed him and wanted him, they're going to get spared. Some people are going to get spared. Keep reading. Keep reading. As a man spareth his own son. God says, Israel is my son. Exodus chapter 4. So, when does the nation... I won't finish. Let me not finish that thought. Just take this thought away that here we have a picture of a book being opened at that white throne judgment, and God's saying, no, 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 devil, these people feared me and thought upon my name. That's what we read about in Zechariah. That's what's going on in Zechariah 3. Joshua's standing there, and he's saying, the devil's saying, you can't let these guys in, you can't let these guys in. He says, no, 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 they're clean. I took away their iniquity. That's what he's talking about here. These people that feared me and thought of my name, they're going to be like my jewels in that day. I'm going to spare them that lake of fire, because they're my, my son, that nation. Okay, my last picture. Is that okay? That was all right? (laughs) Six. I know, I started feeling like I was on thin ice there. You're looking at me a little weird. Malachi chapter four. Last picture. The day of the Lord. What I was going to say before, which I didn't say, is uh, when do those tribulation saints get judged? When do the millennial saints get judged? 
they got to get judged somewhere. It looks like it's going to happen at that white throne. Not everybody's getting destroyed at the white throne. There's other groups at that white throne than just the lost dead. But that's a lesson for when we get to Revelation. We'll get there. You're like, that's going to be like next year. All right. Good things come to those who wait. All right. A picture of the day of the Lord. 4-1. Let's talk about that day. This is the second coming. Now in chapter 4, he kind of like jumps us into the future, leaps us into the prophetic, and kind of transports us 2,000 years at least down the road from where they stand there. Several, you know. Here we go. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. Yikes. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Please notice, number one, that day comes as an oven. Hot. Incinerating. You remember what Jesus said, right? Have you not read your blessed Savior in that Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about feeding the poor and helping all the needy? He said, the grass... That's here today is cast into the oven tomorrow. And all flesh is as grass. He says, the grass is here, it grows up, and then it's going to get cut down, and tomorrow I'm throwing it in the oven. And the day of the Lord cometh as an oven and burns as an oven. What's he burning? Not the biscuits, not the garlic. He's burning the grass. He's burning people up. They're getting destroyed. You read about it in Zechariah where their eyes are melting in their eye sockets and their tongues are melting in their mouths. I didn't write it. God wrote it. You want to flip to the left? I'll show it to you. Zechariah 14, verse number 12. I did not write this. This is in like the outtakes from Raiders in the Lost Ark or the Temple of Doom. This is Bible, Zechariah 14, 12, which is all about the second coming. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. That's what God said. I'm going to burn that grass in an oven. This day, please notice if you go back to Malachi chapter 4, this day couldn't possibly be for you. You don't need to worry about this day. Because in Malachi chapter 4, he says right there that this day is on upon the proud. Everyone that is proud, Isaiah chapter 2 talks about God bringing this down upon all that are proud. Right? If you want to hold your spot there and flip over to Isaiah chapter 2, um, Isaiah 2.12, Isaiah 2 is a great chapter on the day of the Lord. It says, uh, Isaiah 2.12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall appear upon every one that is proud and lofty, upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. <laughs> Verse uh, 17, And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Right? How could that be the day you're looking for? I just can't wait for him to come and get me out of here. All these promises, the blessed hope, all the, he's going to save us, we're going to be saved by hope and all that stuff. And, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and Romans 5.9, all these promises of deliverance. That's not deliverance. That's judgment and destruction. That's God smacking people down for lifting themselves up against God. They shook their fist at him. And now he comes to smack them down. Go back to Malachi chapter 4. Notice also it says... This day turns the wicked to stubble, pulverized. 
Remember Jesus talked about a stone? He said in Luke chapter 20, I think it was, right? Yeah, I'm going to check my notes. Luke 20, yeah. He said, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. First coming. You fall on that stone, broken, you get saved. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Second coming. Jesus Christ came the first time. He's that stumbling stone. He's that tried cornerstone. You fall on him now, and guess what? You get broken in a good way. You get saved. Your heart gets broken, and God says, a broken and contrite spirit I will not despise. You reject that, and you're here when he comes a second time. That rock is coming to rock you. That rock, it says, will hit you and grind you to powder. Turn the wicked into stubble. Keep reading. Then it says, and it shall burn them up. The chaff are burned with unquenchable fire, Matthew 3 says. It says when he comes back, John the Baptist says, and he will throughly purge his floor, and he says the chaff will he burn with unquenchable fire. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> Sweet little Jesus is going to do that. No, the conquering king is going to do that. Keep reading, verse number 2. We're almost there. But unto you that fear my name, see it, there it is again, fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Verse number two, when the night is over, the Lord rises as the sun in the morning. The tribulation is a time of night and howling and wailing, and then the eastern sky, because the sun rises in the east, he splits the eastern sky, and he rises in the morning unto you that fear my name. Because like I said earlier, fear is connected to faith in the Old Testament. I'll give you reference. Nehemiah 7.2. Nehemiah 7.2 shows you how fear is connected to faith in the Old Testament. I won't turn there. But the Son of God, S-O-N, is called the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N. Why would He be called the Son? Because our God is a consuming fire. As sons of fireball. And our God is a consuming fire. And that sun can warm you or it can destroy you. You ever read over there in Daniel chapter 3 about those Hebrew children? The same fire killed the enemies but warmed the faithful. Those children, nothing, no hurt on them. But the enemies were just eviscerated. And that son of righteousness, that, that God is a consuming fire, you know what that does for you? It warms your heart. He blesses you. He's going to change your body so you could stand in his presence. But if he doesn't change your body and you stand in the presence of a holy God, you're going to burn. What am I doing here? Okay, I'm doing good. 805, thank you. Right? I lost my clock. I should put this up here. But, uh, and then it says he has healing in his wings. What in the world is Jesus Christ doing with wings over there? When did he have wings that would heal people? Well, on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ became a type of a fiery flying serpent. A serpent with wings. Like you see your medical people have, right? They have that little symbol with that little bar with that serpent wrapped around it with wings. And the Lord says, I'm going to rise with healing in my wings. Why? Because on the cross, he became a type of the devil. A fiery flaming serpent. He took the wrath that the devil incurred, that you and I deserve, and he produced healing in those wings when he made a curse for you. 
standing in the place of not just the sinner, but standing in the place of Satan himself and taking the wrath that even Satan incurred. And he says, I can now heal you of that disease because I've got healing in my wings. 4.4. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Oreb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Remember last week we talked about the two candlesticks? We said they were Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were going to show up before Jesus Christ comes again. We said they were the ones. They did it the first time. They're going to do it the second time. Well, here they are. (laughs) We're right before the first coming of Christ. We're right before the last words are written, before the Old Testament ends. And who shows up? Moses in verse 4. Elijah in verse 5. Revelation chapter 11, Jesus Christ is getting ready to show up the second time, and who's there? Moses and Elijah. Those are the two candlesticks. Those are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of all the earth. And then please notice in verse 6, and he shall turn the heart, this is, this is said of John the Baptist and Elijah, because John the Baptist could have been Elijah if they received him, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Please notice that the last word of the Old Testament is curse. Mentioned four times in the book of Malachi. Curse, curse. It says cursed three times, but curse four times. God's establishing something. Curse has C-U-R-S-E, five letters. Five's the number of death, right? The Old Testament ends in death. Because you know what the Old Testament did? It just brought death. The letter killeth, but the, but the Spirit giveth life. And the law produced wrath between you and God. It ends in a curse, like Genesis, right? Starts with creation, ends with a coffin in Egypt. Starts with life, ends in death. That's how your whole Old Testament starts. Starts with life, ends with a curse. It's an illustration. Old Testament has... 39 books. 39 books. That's 13 plus 13 plus 13. 13's a bad number. That's a number of rebellion. Didn't they give you in the Old Testament 40 stripes save one? 39. Judgment was 39. That Old Testament was a judgment against you. It was saying you were not holy. You can't approach a holy God. And it's appointed unto men once to die. You deserve to die. The soul that's in it, it shall die. It ends with a curse. That's the end of the Old Testament. Not just the end of it, but the the goal of it was to alienate you from God and show you that you were a sinner deserving His wrath. A curse. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians 3.10 New Testament, 27 books. I like that number. That's 9 plus 9 plus 9. That's fruitfulness three times. Old Testament, that's judgment and rebellion three times. New Testament, that's fruitfulness three times. Go to Isaiah chapter 39. And then we'll do a couple of quick takeaways and be done. Now, remember way back when, like a month ago, when we were studying Isaiah? We said Isaiah was like a mini Bible. 66 chapters line up with the 66 books. No, no Apocrypha. (laughs) 
No extra books in there. It messes everything up if you put those in there. But 66 books, right? Like those six and six loaves, those two rows of six on the table of showbread. Uh, 66 books. Now, that would mean that Isaiah 39 would be the end of the Old Testament, right? Isaiah 39. If Isaiah is a mini Bible, that means the 39 chapters of Isaiah line up with the 39 books of the Old Testament. That means if the Old Testament ends with a, what did it end with again? Curse. That means if God's consistent, and I don't know if he is, I'm only joking, but if God's consistent and God really wrote the Bible and God's establishing a pattern in Isaiah, that means Isaiah 39 should end with a? Very good, Stephen. All right. Okay, let's read Isaiah 39, 6. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house, he's talking to Hezekiah, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, they shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Old Testament portion of Isaiah ends with a curse, a judgment pronounced upon Hezekiah. You're going to lose everything. Your kid, your things are going to get taken away. Things are going to die. Things are going to get lost. You're going into captivity. Old Testament ends with a curse. Isaiah 39 ends with a curse. God wrote the Bible. God's consistent. A picture of that day of the Lord. Now let's, uh, we don't have to flip anywhere. Actually, we can go back to Malachi. We'll finish there. A few quick takeaways, a few big ideas in the book of Malachi. First big idea for you to take away from the book of Malachi is the tragic consequences of sin. Ugh. The tragic consequences of sin. Where do we start our Bible? We start our Bible in a garden. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And as that first chapter ended, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God gets this garden ready. What is a garden for? Life. It was a place where life was going to foster, where fellowship was going to thrive, where God was going to walk with his creation. That's where he starts the whole book. Then he ends the Old Testament with the word curse. Because the effects of Adam's sin are seen throughout history. It starts with life, when it starts with God, when it starts with what he wants, and when man gets what he wants, you end with death, you end with a curse. All the time. Do what God wants, you get life and fellowship, a garden. Do what you want, you get a curse. And it just took a few thousand years, in those 4,000 years, we go from good to curse. Sad, sad, sad. What's, what did it? Sin. Sin. Your and my sin. Adam's sin kicked it off, and other people sinned away, and there we are stuck in need of a Savior, in need of life to show up again. And that's what he does, right? Four days passed, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, curse. Day five, life shows up again because they need life. And Jesus Christ said, I am the life, right? Number two, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, all the joys are prophetic. He's always pointing ahead to the Lord coming. He's pointing ahead to the kingdom. He's pointing ahead to all this good stuff. In the New Testament, all the joys are present. Amen. 
We're not waiting for Him to come. He's come for us already. We're not waiting for a Savior. We've got Him in our hearts. We're not waiting to experience joy. The Bible says you have joy unspeakable and full of glory. You can have it right now. I know we have days when we're sad and we're down, but you know what? There could still be some joy running underneath that. The Jews, they're looking ahead. They're looking prophetically to a future joy to get them through. You and I can look back and say, oh, no, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Right? That's what we got it because who do we have down in our heart? He lives in our heart. Right? There's a difference there. They're looking ahead. We're looking right at ourselves. We got them. And then finally, number three. We really just have to remember these four. The whole book is really these four words. Remember, repent, return, and rehearse. That's the last big idea. Remember. What are you remembering? Well, chapter one. Remember God's love. That's what he wanted them to remember. Remember God's love. Remember God loves you. No matter how bad it gets or what you think or how he's going to spank you if you're his son. He might give you a spanking. But remember, God loves you. That's where you start. That was chapter one. Number two, repent of your sins. Turn away from stuff. He's challenging the priests. He's challenging the people. Repent, repent, repent. You're being contemptible. You're, you're trampling my work on the feet. Turn around, guys. Hey, if God loves you, turn around. That's chapter two. Repent, turn, change your mind. Chapter three, let's look at verse seven. Verse seven. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, where shall we return? Where'd we go? I'm here, God. No, you're not. He goes, you're here, but you're a million miles away. Right? Doesn't that sound a lot like, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you? That's the book of James. That's got a very Jewish connotation. Return unto me, and I'll return unto you. And when Israel cries out in distress, guess who's coming back? Jesus Christ. Return to Him. Remember God's love, chapter 1. Repent of your sins, chapter 2. Return to Him, chapter 3. And then chapter 4, rehearse His love, His grace, and His promised coming. Because chapter 4 is all about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Here it is. He pictures it for you. That's a good thing for us to remember. That'll get you through your Christian life until He comes again. Because that's what Malachi is about, right? Malachi is the book before he came the first time, right? Right? What do you need to remember before he comes the second time? The same things. Remember God loves you, chapter 1. Repent of any sin, chapter 2. Return to him in spirit and in truth, chapter 3. And rehearse the promise of his coming, chapter 4. You do that, you'll be ready when he comes. You do that, you'll stand as a burning and shining light. You do that, and you won't have to be ashamed before him at his coming. Remember, repent, return, and rehearse. Thanks for being here tonight. Let's have a word of prayer.